Well, there's a modern parable told about three young trees. One day, these three trees all agreed to pray that they would be used by God for, for something great and not simply die from old age. The first tree wanted to become a manger where tired old cattle could feed after a long day's work. And God rewarded the tree for having such modesty. It became a very special manger, the one in which the Son of God was laid. The second tree prayed it might become a boat, that it might give refuge to weary travelers. This prayer was also answered, and one day the boat sheltered a man who walked on water and calmed a storm. The third tree, however, was made into a large cross to serve as an instrument of suffering and death. The tree was deeply disappointed in its fate. It wanted to be used by God for something good, something noble, not an instrument of death. But one day Jesus of Nazareth was nailed to that cross, and his life was given over for the salvation of man. And on that day, the tree realized its true significance and its true purpose. In fact, more than any other tree, it was used by God. Unhappy with its fate at first, the tree came to see God's greater purposes. It said that this little story was told in underground churches in Eastern Europe to encourage those suffering for their faith. His believers oftentimes could not understand their sufferings, why they were being made to suffer. Like the third tree, they had high hopes and aspirations. They wanted to be greatly used by God. But instead, they were being crushed under this great weight of persecution. Suffering seemed to cut them off from God's plans. It seemed to signal God's rejection. But like the tree that formed the cross, they came to realize that through their suffering, God was actually using them for his greater purposes. They were assured, reassured, that their suffering did not indicate an interruption in God's plan. It was part of God's plan for them. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been learning a, a similar lesson from Philippians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there now as we continue to Philippians chapter 1. Suffering is not a road bump in God's plan for your life. It's not an interruption. It's not an accident. It's not unforeseen. Although suffering itself is not good, and God is not the author of evil, He still has a plan in it. In fact, through suffering, God is bringing about a greater good, a greater purpose. You probably know, Scripture often teaches that God is is working out all things for good for those who love him. You've heard that verse before, and it can be hard enough for some to swallow. That God can actually use suffering for, for good. At first, it doesn't seem to make sense. But if you find that verse challenging, then you're really going to struggle with with this passage in Philippians 1. For here and here only, suffering is actually described as a gift. As we've studied for two weeks now, God can actually intend our sufferings as a gracious gift. Read it for yourselves. Once again, Philippians 1, 29 and 30. Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Charizomai is the word in Greek for granted here. It means grace gift, graciously bestowing favor on someone. This verse is teaching that God has graciously given us something. What is it? Well, first, for one, our salvation, our very faith comes to us as a gracious gift. We, we know that. We, we rejoice in that. We embrace that. But this verse also mentions there, there's a second gift. A second gift 
God graciously gives to us here. Only this is a gift no one wants, no one asks for. Unfortunately, it doesn't come with a return label. He says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This verse describes the the gift of suffering. And as we found for for two weeks already, there's no way around it. It's a very actually simple, straightforward, plain verse. It says what it says. In the same way, God graciously gives us the gift of salvation. Sometimes he graciously gives us the gift of suffering. The Bible says a lot about God's relationship to our sufferings, but only here is it ever described as a a gift. And needless to say, for just about everyone on the planet, that's not their perspective on suffering. That is the exact opposite. Suffering as a gift, it's, it's insulting to suggest that. Rather, suffering is a great evil. It represents everything wrong with the world, that there's nothing good about it. It's the worst part of life. But if this verse is true, then it's going to change your perspective on suffering, right? It should, and it does. Listen, the Bible still affirms that suffering is a great evil. It is a reflection of everything that's wrong with the world. It is the worst part of life. However, it can be turned into good. It's not good, but it can be used for good. And in that regard, it can even be turned into a gift, something that that benefits you in the end. If this troubles you, just think about the cross. For there's the ultimate example of God using suffering for good. God took this great evil, all of man's evil, both in those who crucified Christ and in in the, 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 the sins of those whom he paid for, and he transformed it into the greatest good whereby he brought about the salvation, the eternal salvation of millions. It wasn't an accident. That was not outside of God's control. Even Christ's suffering on the cross, that was, that was on purpose. That was a part of God's plan to bring about this ultimate good. And hopefully through this you realize, yes, it is possible for God to take what men mean for evil and turn it into his good. But that being said, though, it's always a different story when you're the one being made to suffer. It's different when it wrecks your life and you can't see the good outcome. It's not like you're dying on a cross to save millions of people. When you suffer, you just look at your life and say, like, what's the good in this? Where's the good in my suffering? Well, for the past two weeks, we've, after explaining this text, we've been trying to reflect on that question. Namely, how can this be? The text, it says what it says. To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The real question we've been asking then is, how, how can that be? How can suffering ever be construed as a grace gift. It's a mature truth. It's challenging for some. But if we could see the outcome, if we could see the good that God is bringing about through our sufferings, then we might be able to digest this truth a little better. How is God working through your trials? If you can identify some of those greater purposes that he's bringing about in your own life, then you'll actually find a deeper comfort when you suffer and you'll also find the pathway to the right response. And that's what Paul is really getting at. He's trying to shift their perspective on suffering, leading to the right response to suffering. So over the past two weeks, we've covered 
five ways God intends suffering as a grace gift. We don't have time to rehash them, but they bear repeating. They're worth mentioning again. Number one, suffering brings Christ-likeness. Number two, suffering brings assurance of salvation. Number three, suffering brings eternal glory. Number four, suffering brings people to God. And number five, suffering brings glory to God. If you want the long version, you have to get the past couple of sermons. But if suffering is to be transformed into a grace gift, then there has to be some way where we or others benefit through it. Well, in our studies, we found many ways in which God blesses us. He works in those around us, even draws sinners to salvation. He glorifies his name. God God is working even through our suffering. Now, I should mention, of course, none of this is going to make any sense to you unless Christ is truly Lord of your life. Otherwise, you're not going to find much comfort here because, you know, who cares about Christ-likeness? Who cares about assurance? Who cares about the glory of God? If you don't, if you're not sold out in following the Lord, well, then you'll find no answers here. You'll be in the same hopeless situation as the rest of the world when you suffer. But if you know Christ and if you truly live for him by faith, then what we've studied so far, it's enough to already transform your sufferings into a benefit, into a grace gift through God's workings. All right, well, I'll say again, if you haven't been with us, you can always get the past sermons to get the long version on and all that. For now, there's just one final matter we wanted to address before we move on in Philippians again to chapter 2. We said previously that in our sufferings, our right response brings glory to God. And that is Paul's aim. He's writing primarily to, to shift their perspective on their sufferings. The Philippians, they were being persecuted for the faith. They didn't understand it. He's informing them of God's purposes in their sufferings. And as their perspective is, is shifted, so their response should be shifted. It should lead to the right response to their sufferings. But our final question is, well, what does that look like? What exactly does the right response look like to suffering? Like, How do you suffer the right way? To be fair, Paul doesn't specifically address the right response to suffering here in Philippians 1, 29 and 30. He's not as concerned primarily, like I said. But it's still a subject that is so important, I think it, it bears mentioning. Once you have the right perspective on suffering, which is what Philippians 1.29 should accomplish, well then, what is the right response? How, how to respond? How do you suffer to the glory of God? And that's what we're going to focus on today for this final message in this, in this passage. For our time today, I want to suggest to you five right responses to suffering. Just simple as that. I mean, we covered five ways God intends suffering as a grace gift. Well, to complement that, here's five right responses to that grace gift. I mean, if all that is true, if we have a new perspective on suffering, how to respond, let's, let's find out together. And hopefully this will give us a rounded out understanding of suffering in the life of a believer. You're going to suffer. Whether you're a Christian or not, might as well do so to the glory of God. We'll begin with this. Number one, speak truth. Number one, speak truth truth. This response really should be at the top of your list. You get this right, everything should follow. You get this wrong, 
well, you'll pretty quickly slip into the same despair as those in the world. When suffering comes, you need to train yourself to speak truth to yourself. What do I mean by this, and, and why is it so important? Well, first consider, with all forms of suffering come, comes temptation. Temptation is built into all suffering. This is true for Christian persecution and just for affliction in general. And as a side note, here in Philippians 1, Paul, he's primarily talking about suffering for the faith, Christian persecution. But honestly, everything we've talked about applies equally to suffering in general, even indiscriminate suffering that has nothing to do with you being a Christian, like getting in a car accident or or getting cancer. The reason is because all suffering, both persecution and affliction, comes with the same temptation. And therefore, all suffering requires the same right response. And so you might be wondering, what kind of temptation are we talking about here? Well, when you're made to suffer in any way, you're going to be faced with temptation to forget everything you know to be true about God and to deny him. And sometimes when bad things happen, your own sinful flesh will cry out, leading you to potentially question God's goodness or his love for you. Other times when you suffer, the people around you might be the ones providing you temptation to just just deny God or turn away from God. Recall Job's wife. A lot of people don't realize is Job's wife, she suffered nearly as much as Job. She lost all of her wealth as well. She lost her ten children as well. But as you know, hers was the wrong response as she curses God and then really tempts Job to do the same. Job 2.9, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. You see, her intense suffering, she had real intense suffering of her own, but it led her to believe the worst about God, and she fell prey to this temptation to to deny him. So when you walk through the dark valley of suffering, you will find temptations whispered into your heart in the form of questions, and you know the questions. Does God really love me? Is God really good? I mean, if so, how could he let me suffer like this? It doesn't seem fair. Is God fair? Is God really just? I mean, what did I do to deserve this? Why don't bad people suffer? Why does it seem like the righteous suffer while, while the wicked in our society, they get away with things and they, they prosper? Is God even in control? Is he really on the throne? Does God even exist? Many people have had such questions and not finding answers more than a few have walked away from the faith as a result. I knew one guy, he was raised in the faith, and at one point he was very devout, but he could never get over the reality of human suffering. And There's a lot of it on the planet. And he couldn't put together, how could a good God, how could a loving God allow this much suffering? He never could understand, not knowing the truth, not believing the truth. He eventually succumbed to the temptation to doubt God, and it proved too much. He abandoned all belief. Today, still, he's an atheist. You may think to yourself, I would never doubt God like that. And maybe not, but we'll see how you respond when tribulation strikes your house. And we'll see how you are and what you feel about God when when you're the one suffering great calamity. 
the temptation. Temptation is not sin. But the temptation to sin, to doubt, to deny will be there. When you're made to walk in the valley of suffering, all the more so then you need to be guided by the truth. Otherwise you risk getting lost. You may never escape. God's word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Without it, you may stumble over these temptations. So especially when you suffer, you need to remind yourself of the truth, the truth of God, his word, his promises, his character, his deeds. I think this is what we see David doing in Psalm 23, which Don happened to read this morning. Psalm 23, you you know it obviously, verse 1. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 4, even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 6, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. We don't know the circumstances of this psalm, but clearly David was suffering and resting in the truth. He says, even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he fears no evil, for God is with him. When most people suffer... They believe the opposite. God is not with me. God has has left me. He's abandoned me. He's forsaken me. Where is he? If not, why am I suffering? Why doesn't he hear me? But that could not be further from the truth. So like I said, when you're suffering, when you're afflicted by trials, when you're persecuted for the faith, you must first speak truth to yourself. This is essential to the right response. Now, briefly, what kind of truth are we talking about? We'll just ask, when you suffer, how are you tempted? Find the corresponding truth and then read it, remember it, believe it, rest on it, and so on. I'll give you a few examples. Sometimes when you suffer, you might feel like things are out of control. There's a randomness to our sufferings, our trials, and it it might tempt you to think that God is is not sovereign. He's not in control. He's not good. Maybe an earthquake strikes the central coast. Every house on your block, just fine. Your house, cracked foundation. They condemn your house and you did not opt in for earthquake insurance. So it's it's lost. It's a total loss. You have nothing. Why? Why you? Why your house? Of all the houses on the block, why your house? doesn't seem fair. doesn't make sense. You're a Christian too. Doesn't God like favor you? Why not like the, the unbeliever's house? These temptations will be real in the moment, but that's when you need to recall the truth. You may not get an answer as to why your house, but that doesn't change who God is. He's still on the throne. He's still in control. He still cares for you. In fact, all the hairs of your head are numbered. All the days of your life are numbered when as yet there was not one of them. He sees what you're going through. He's not surprised by your circumstances. God never has white knuckles on the throne. He never breaks into a cold sweat as if things are spinning out of control down here on earth. There's an appointed time for all things. You simply have to understand this and and believe this and, and trust this. Find peace that even though you don't know, God knows. He knows what he's doing. He is in control and he is good. You have nothing to fear. God is on the throne. He has a purpose. We spent two weeks studying all those purposes, right? So as you rest in them, you'll find your comfort.
Or maybe when you suffer unjustly, simply for being a Christian, the the thought crosses your mind, is God God good? Is he just? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Think back to the family in Germany. 2013, 20 social workers and police members stormed their house, raided their house, forcibly removed their four children from their house. The kids are now basically prisoners of the state more or less, taken away from their parents. Why? For the simple crime of homeschooling, which in Germany is illegal, especially for those Christians. Now, though, all, this, all these parents, all they can do is suffer. That's all they can do. There's nothing they can do about this. The wicked seemingly have won. Why? Where is God in this? That, that doesn't seem right, we would say. But you have to let the truth control your thoughts. Speak truth to yourself that, yes, this is a fallen world where evil reigns. Right now, Satan, the god of this world, holds sway. But you have to to also remember Christ, he's won the victory on the cross. He's crushed the serpent's head. Evil may persist for now, but a day of reckoning is coming when all evil and evildoers will be judged. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God sees what happens to his children. He doesn't forget. The Lord is the avenger of his people, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 says. And you have to rest in this truth. I think overall, though, perhaps the greatest doubt people have when suffering comes is this. God doesn't love me. Either God doesn't exist or he doesn't love me because otherwise he wouldn't let this be happening to me. But this, this doubt is by far the least justified. I mean, what does the truth of God's word say about this? It says you have absolutely zero reason to ever doubt the love of God for you. How about Romans 5.8? But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What what more must God do to prove his love for you than by sending his son? Like, what what else are you waiting for? Is that not enough? You and I were lost, guilty sinners, inheriting nothing but a just condemnation. But God, in pure mercy and love, he condemned his own son on the cross in our place to pay for our sins. And now even grants us free, eternal life. And what else does God have to do to convince you, to display his love for you? Is that not enough? Further, Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, it's true. We may still have to endure suffering in this life. But as we've learned over the past two weeks, God God is working out other purposes in our suffering, including our own eternal glory. And that's really what we have waiting for us, eternal glory in Christ. What do you really have to worry about in this life? I mean, it'll all pale in comparison. And don't forget verse 35 of Romans 8, where Paul says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
realize Paul wrote that list because that's what Christians were suffering. That's what they were up against. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you will escape suffering. We, we, we know well Jesus promised us more. But it doesn't ever separate us from the love of God. And you can never believe that temptation. To the contrary, he says in verse 37, but in all these things, our sufferings, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. When you suffer, you're tempted to think something's wrong here. Like God is wrong. His plan is wrong. These circumstances are wrong. This can't be right. It's not right to me. But you have to let the truth set you free from all such doubt. God is still good, still loving, still wise, still sovereign, still compassionate, still just, still on the throne. So equip yourself with the truth and draw on it when the time comes. If you were to go camping, you'd be wise to take extra batteries because when the darkness comes, you don't want to be without light. That's, that's the worst thing. And likewise, build a storehouse of truth in your heart that you may draw on it when days of darkness come. Because otherwise, when, when the night comes for you, you'll be without the light and you will stumble. You might even fall. Let the light of God's truth illumine your mind and guide your response. This is absolutely essential to rightly responding to suffering. So first, the first right response, speak truth to yourself, even to others at the appropriate time. We spent the lion's share of our time on this first one because, like I said, you get this right, everything else will follow. But let, let's keep going here. So number one, speak truth. Second response, so you pray. Pray. Now, you probably thought of prayer as a right response, and, and rightly so. But realize prayer, the right kinds of prayer itself, is a consequence of knowing the truth and speaking the truth to yourself. In prayer, you are expressing your dependence on God in light of the truth. You're taking what you know to be true of God and you're, you're counting on that and, and praying to him to deliver you. And that, that's an expression of faith. That's, that's what God wants. That's what he wants. In fact, we learn he might even use suffering to get you to pray more. As we've learned, God at times uses suffering that we might trust him more, that we might depend on him more, that we might realize his ways are best. And granted, this may test your faith, but you're meant to express your trust through prayer. This is why we find, for example, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as, as he's in his final moments of despair, he, he cries out to the Lord in prayer for deliverance, to receive his spirit. Or when Herod Agrippa, he executed James, the brother of John, and he arrested Peter, and Peter was going to be executed. How did the church respond? Acts 12.5 says, So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. As we've said, suffering of any kind comes with temptation. One huge temptation is to grow anxious. And as we'll see sooner or later in Philippians 4, prayer is the antidote for that as well. I mean, you know Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. 
David's Psalms, I think, are particularly helpful here. David, he often wrote in times of suffering, of affliction. And his Psalms, what are they? They're, they're basically prayers. They're, they're just recorded prayers of him crying out to God. He was in a moment of despair. How did he respond? He filled his mind with truth, and then he just prayed. He expressed his dependence on God. He recalled God's character and deeds and prayed for deliverance. It's like Psalm 57. David wrote that while he was hiding in a cave from Saul, who's trying to kill him. And what, what does he write? Verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Notice how David, he mixes truth into his prayers for deliverance. He recalls God's person and God's promises and finds comfort in that truth. This even leads David to praise God in the midst of hiding in a cave for his life. He says in verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O, God, o Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to your name among the nations. Even though suffering, David can still exalt God in his heart because, look, he knows who God is and he knows his trial doesn't change that. Like this changes who God is. The same goes for us and you need to learn to reflect a similar trust and hope in God through prayer. And when dark times come for you, and, and they will, you would do well to even literally open up the Psalms and just, just pray them. Just read them and, and pray them yourself. God will hear and God does answer. Now, speaking of David's prayers and David's singing, this actually leads to the third right response to our sufferings. And that would be worship. Worship. This, I find, is a corollary to prayer and speaking the truth. In fact, in a special way, wouldn't you say that declaring truth about God and prayer they really come together and they intersect in songs of praise. Isn't that the combination of, of truth and prayer? It's like, it's like a song of praise. Indeed, worship, especially in the form of singing, it's a most appropriate response to affliction. Not only does it exalt God, but I actually believe God, through, through the gift of music, gives us a measure of comfort as well. There's precedent for this response. I mean, we're in Philippians Think back to when Paul first entered Philippi for the very first time. Remember what happened? He and, and Silas were, were beaten up and thrown in jail for preaching Christ. And you remember as they're, they're rotting away in that jail cell, how they responded to their unjust suffering. How did they respond? Acts 16.25 says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. This type of response just sounds crazy to the world. It sounds callous. It sounds just foolish. When those in the world suffer, they, they don't sing. They don't worship. They're instead consumed by grief, tears, pain, leading to depression. We too, when we suffer, hey, we may share the grief, the tears, the pain. 
but not the depression. Why not? Because that's a result of hopelessness. And though we may lose many things, we don't lose Christ, who should be our our real hope. You know, the reason suffering is so terrible is because it represents the loss of things we hold dear. When you suffer, you lose. You lose time, you lose money, you lose possessions, you may lose your health. Worse yet, you may lose people, you may lose relationships. And for those in the world, these things are their hope. This is what they're living for. And when suffering suffering inevitably comes and takes these things away, it also takes their hope. And so they have nothing left. They sink into despair and depression. And for some, it even leads to the ultimate wrong response to suffering, which is suicide. But Christians should be different. And we may lose the same things. We may lose time and money and possessions and, and health and relationships, even people. We should not lose hope because we don't lose Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We still have eternal life. We still have forgiveness of sins. In fact, as we learned in Philippians, God at times even draws us closer to Christ through sufferings. We should have more hope. As you speak the truth to yourself, as you pray, the result should be hope. We still have hope. Therefore, we should still have a song. We still have reason to praise. And in this, God is exalted, and I think we are even comforted. Job understood this. You've got to talk about Job a lot anytime you talk about suffering. And you know, who suffered more loss than Job? Just go down the list. He lost it all. He lost all of his money, all of his possessions, basically all of his health, all of his children, but he didn't lose God. And so how did he respond? Job 1, 20 through 22, says, Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head. That's grief. Then it says, And he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Hey, all that temptation was there, but he spoke truth, he prayed, he worshipped, he got it right. But should we only praise God when, when good things happen to us? Should we only sing his praises when things turn out the way we see best? Is God only worthy of praise when when our life is good. As Christians, we claim to pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's what we say, right? Well, you're going to be tested if you really believe that when when it's time to suffer. But even so, praise God for his, his perfect will. Do you believe his will is perfect? Job suffered. Christ suffered. You expect to be different? Like Job later said to his wife, Job 2.10, he said, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? He knew all things are ultimately from the hand of the Lord, but God is is still good and he's still in control. And so we will praise God at all times and in all circumstances. And like I said, it is a deep truth. It will test your faith, the reality of your faith. Do Do you believe this? Do you really trust this God? But give him 
your full trust. And then praise him, even in the valley. And there, in that praise, you'll find a deeper comfort than you would otherwise know. This should lead you to the fourth right response. Number four, take joy. Yes, take joy. Believe it or not, God desires us to be joyful when we suffer. Obviously, we're not taking joy in our suffering, in the bad things. But we still are to take joy in God who is working through our sufferings. We're bouncing around many passages today, so I'll bring in James 1. You probably know James 1 too, where he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. All of it. Consider it all joy. It's another verse that stumbles some people. It can seem insensitive. Wait, so are you saying we should be happy when we suffer? We should be happy when, when a loved one dies. We should be happy when we lose our job simply for being a Christian. I mean, that would insult most people if you told them to take joy when they suffer. Why? Because most people view suffering from a human perspective, and from a human perspective, there, there's nothing good about it. But you see, as you mature in the faith, as you grapple with passages like Philippians 1.29 and James 1.2, you come to view sufferings from a divine perspective, an eternal perspective. Perspective, And again, that perspective shift, that, that changes everything, changes your response. No, you're, you're not happy when your loved one dies, you lose your job for simply being a Christian. But you see God's greater purposes in all things. And in this, you can rejoice. In this, you can take joy. Again, we spent two sermons studying all the ways we can still take joy because God's purposes are still going forth. And you have to embrace them. That through your suffering, God may even be giving you gracious gifts. Like your Christ-likeness, the assurance of salvation, building up your eternal glory, so forth. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. He said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says the same thing, rejoice and, and be glad. How can you do that? From a human perspective, you will find no reasons. But from an eternal perspective, there is a great reason for when we suffer, especially when we suffer for the sake of Christ, like Paul said in Philippians 1, we have a sign of our salvation. And that means we're blessed. It means whatever suffering we endure in this life, it's the closest to hell we will ever get. Do you think about that blessing? Even when you suffer, that reminder, this is the most suffering you'll ever have, eternally speaking. Instead, by God's grace, we will be internal, eternally blessed and joyful. And that's enough reason to take joy right now. Where is your joy found? If it's found in the world and the things of the world, then when you suffer, you're going to lose your joy because your suffering often robs you of the things of the world. But if you place your deepest joy in the Lord and the things of the Lord, then when you suffer, 
Well, you won't lose joy. In fact, you'll even get more joy. Because everything else that doesn't matter often gets burnt away in the fire. And you're left with more of Christ. More of Christ in you. This is how God often works through our sufferings. Let's hear from Peter now. 1 Peter 4, 12-13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And he says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Those in Christ who rejoice in their sufferings now, they will rejoice eternally when Christ comes. But those who fall away from their sufferings now, they will be in shame eternally when Christ comes. You must take joy, and you must take joy in the Lord, and you must endure. And this brings us to the final right response to our suffering. And it is to endure, to endure. You can sense a progression to these responses. You've got to start by speaking truth to your mind. As you internalize that truth, you should respond but with prayer and praise, expressions of that trust, expressions of the truth. This should then lead you to take joy in that truth as you pray, as you praise, seeing God's gift of grace in your trials. And all this put together should lead you to endure. And that is the most important response. Because if you don't endure, it's all for naught. If you don't endure in the faith, if you fall away, it's all for nothing. Your faith was in vain. Your suffering was in vain. You prove yourself to be the seed sown by the rocky places. And I trust you don't want that. But if, you, if you're not resting in the truth and, and praying and worshiping and taking joy, I don't see how you can endure. You you only find darkness and depression in your suffering, and and for many, that's a road you don't want to be on. Why why do it? Instead, turn to the Lord. This is how some fall away, as you surely know. And you might ask, well, how do I know that's not going to be me? Well, as we've learned, as you suffer, as you endure, you gain the assurance of your salvation. Remember, we covered that. That that should encourage you you as you press on. You're gaining more assurance of your salvation. But ultimately, do you want the ultimate assurance of your salvation? Well, simply believe until you die. Just die in the faith. That's what you have to do. He, Like Jesus said, he who endures until the end will be saved. You must endure. Back to, back to James chapter 1, where he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He says after that, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he says, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And down in verse 12, he says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What you have to realize is that God, he's actually strengthening your faith through your trials. If your faith is real, it's not going to burn up. He's only refining your faith and strengthening your faith 
through trials. It's like a weightlifter. With each exercise, you're actually breaking down your muscles. And it can lead to great pain. But at the same time, as you persist, you'll grow stronger and stronger and stronger. You can endure more and more and more. And likewise, as you persist in your trials, trusting God, you gain strength, you gain endurance, leading to the crown of life. James says over in James 5, verses 10 and 11, he says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. It's what it's it's all about. You have to endure. We count those blessed who endured. He says, you've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. And there we come back to the truth. God is, is compassionate. He is merciful. He has not designed your sufferings to curse you, to judge you, because he hates you, because he's abandoned you. Rather, It's come upon you, like James would say, for your testing because because God loves you. Because he's actually trying to shape you into the image of Christ and strengthen your faith that you might endure, that you might inherit the crown of life. For this, though, you must simply endure. We count those blessed who endured. This right response to suffering, it's so important. One last time, consider Job, as as James 5 does. You remember, Satan was the one responsible for Job's sufferings, right? But do you remember Satan's goal? His mission was to prove Job's faith false. His goal was to make Job deny God and fall away. That was his mission. And what, what tool, what tactic did Satan use for this? He used suffering. Why? Because it works. For many people, their faith is a sham. Their house is built on sand. It just takes a little storm to come and and blow them away. This is still true today. And like we said earlier, this, this temptation and suffering is still real. Thankfully, though, Job's faith was true. And he stood fast. His trust in God was real. And he rightly responded by speaking truth to himself praying, worshiping, taking joy, and then simply enduring until the end. And God was merciful. God was compassionate and richly blessed him in this life and, of course, in the life to come as well. You must learn to do the same. This is the right response to your sufferings. It's my prayer that this whole study the past couple weeks has changed your perspective on suffering. And this was Paul's intention in Philippians 1.29 to show the good, to show the glory, to show the grace gift in our suffering. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. When you understand it, you see suffering differently, which leads you to respond to suffering differently. And that's, that's what it's, it's all about. Our God is a big God. He's able to turn what men mean for evil into good. You must accept this, embrace this, and when your turn comes, and you live long enough, it will, then you must rightly respond. Respond not in doubt, but in faith. God knows what he's doing, and if he saw fit 
for his own son to suffer, for the cross to come before the crown for his own son, well, we, we should be pleased for the same to be true for us. And indeed, through our sufferings, God is drawing us closer to Christ, making us more like Christ, which means that for us too, after our cross comes a crown. I'll close with Paul, what he says in Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that we live, that we might know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we pray before you this, this morning, thanking you and, and praising you for your word. We need, first, your perspective on our suffering. We don't need man's perspective. It is false. It is short-sighted. It cannot see you or your purposes. Those who deny you can never see the good. But Lord, we thank you for revealing to us through, through these scriptures this divine, this eternal perspective that you are working things for good for those who love you. You prove this first and foremost in your own son Christ, who himself suffered, who himself met the cross before the crown. For your glory, Lord, and you call us to follow him. You call us to deny ourselves, pick up the cross and follow him, and this will be our road as well. But we take comfort knowing this, Lord. Let these truths infiltrate our mind and live there. Because the day will come for us. This still is a fallen world where sin and Satan hold sway, Lord. And we know bad things happen. Even though you're still in control, suffering will come. But may these truths so reside in us that we would not stumble in the darkness, but be guided by your light always and rightly respond, praying to you, worshiping you, taking joy because we see your, your hand, your purposes. They're still at work. We're not abandoned. And ultimately, Lord, enduring. In all this, we can't do it apart from your grace. We need your spirit to guide, to assist, to strengthen us. And may you do so, Lord. May we be those who endure, that we too might inherit, simply by your grace, this, this crown of life. We count those blessed who endured, Lord. We thank you for the blessing and, and bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.